right, friends, welcome to the final episode of season four of the Resilient Pastor podcast. Uh, as you know by now, this podcast is just one uh, piece of the Resilient Pastor initiative from Barna that includes in-person events, webinars, uh, cohort, book, more, you know, all of that stuff just aimed at encouraging and equipping the church uh, and church leaders in whatever context you find yourself in. But once again, joined by Rich and Sharon. All right, guys, at the close of the season here, what are some of the highlights? I mean, just having conversations around a multitude of different matters pertaining to pastoral ministry. I, I think having a space where people can go, yeah, that's what I'm wrestling with as well. Uh, these are the questions that I'm carrying. Um, those are some in, some of the things that have been highlights. Uh, and as someone who's not just uh, a co-host here, but someone who actually consumes the content as well, <laughs> uh, it has been just a, a great gift for me personally. Yeah, I want to share two things that have stayed with me from the last mm -hmm. season. The first was my conversation with Jess Connolly, which was just outstanding. Mm -hmm. And I asked her about her experience of burnout, how she came to that point, even though I've been friends with her for a while. I'd asked her in the years leading up, like, how do you avoid burnout? She would have given me a great answer. Mm. And so I asked her, you know, if you knew how to avoid burnout, how did you still burn out? And she said, because I made exceptions for myself. Mm. And that was really personally convicting. So I've, I've returned to that. And then the other thing that has stayed with me was actually something that Rich said. You had made a comment, Rich, I'm trying to remember what episode it was, but you said that you could tell how much someone had processed their story by how mm. coherently they told it. Mm. And I have thought about that so many times since then, just in conversations I've been in when I've listened to other people tell their stories and other podcasts. And I've thought this person was not ready mm. <laughs> to tell this story because it doesn't, yeah. it's, it's not cohering yet. And that was really, I've thought about that so many times. So wow. those were two very specific highlights for me. Well, I, you know, for me, it was Ike Miller, Sharon. So I don't know uh, why, <laughs> why, why he didn't list Ike as the highlight. No, uh, I, I remember this, the, you know, Ike is just so brilliant. I threw some questions at him on the fly and he connected his exegetical work on the theology of John's gospel with his work on baggage. And I just thought it was amazing. But in all seriousness, also, in addition to that, you know, it, the conversations, just the three of us is amazing. And I love listening to you guys at work when you're doing these other interviews. I'm, I'm, I'm getting blessed at the gym or in my car when I hear you, uh, you know, dig out these, these beautiful insights from the guests that we've had. Uh, and if you're, you know, if, if you're listening to this podcast and you've enjoyed it, uh, you know, there's more coming. In fact, one of the specific things I want to mention is in March, the State of Pastors Summit uh, is something that you can join online. So we're going to discover and talk about the latest research and insights from the Barna team on how pastors are doing right now and uncover ways that your organization or your church can support and encourage leaders uh, for a better future. There's, the guests will include, you know, David Kinneman, um, Sharon, Faith Uricho, Ed Stetzer, Rich, uh, myself, uh, and others. And for more information on this webcast and to register, go to barna.com slash summit. Uh, it's going to be a wonderful, wonderful uh, online event that you won't want to miss. Rich, you got to sit down with John Mark Comer recently. Uh, yeah. Tell us about it, man. Yeah, John Mark is great. Uh, he's a friend, and for those who are might be new to him, he's the New York Times bestselling author of seven books, including The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry and Live No Lies, as well as being a, a pastor, uh, teacher, and founder of an organization called Practicing the Way. His latest book, Practicing the Way, I'm really looking forward to reading it, uh, Be With Jesus, Become Like Him, Do As He Did, is now available wherever books are, are sold. Um, after serving as a lead pastor of Bridge, Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, I, I preached there in 2023, just a wonderful community. Uh, he did that for two decades. Um, John Mark now lives in, in Los Angeles, where he serves as a teacher in residence on discipleship and spiritual formation at Vintage Church uh, LA. Uh, before we get into that conversation, though, I, you know, John Mark and I talked about formation, discipleship, rule of life. I want to talk a little bit about formation and discipleship. But first, here's here's... This is an interesting question in that how do you two delineate formation and discipleship? I I, I bump up against this as hmm. someone who reads a lot on formation and someone yeah. who uh, writes about it. Uh, when someone says, you know, 
formation, are they interchangeable for you? Um, or when you think about formation, do you think one thing and discipleship another? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, I tend to think of discipleship in a more relational context that it is, you know, one thing that we try to do is demystify discipleship, that it's not you having all the answers and then dispensing those answers to somebody else, but it is you simply pursuing Jesus in every area of your life and then mm. inviting someone to walk alongside of you in that. And it's as simple as that. And then spiritual formation, I tend to think more of, you know, in conjunction with with spiritual disciplines, which you're also doing within the context of community. But I see that a little bit differently. So that's the distinction in my mind. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. I, you know, I'll be honest. I think I have used those terms interchangeably. But as I'm reflecting on that question right now, Rich, uh, maybe let me put this as a hypothesis. Maybe I think of discipleship, just my own perception of that word tends to put the agency on me. It's something I'm doing. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, following Jesus. I'm learning. I'm, you know, and formation makes me think more about what the Holy Spirit is doing. And it's not that I don't have a role and it's not that I don't participate mm. with, uh, or partner with the Spirit, but I think it's about, you know, it's like that emphasis on the wrong syllable, you know, like, like the, but there's, there's obviously both pieces here, but I think discipleship tends to be self-oriented and can sometimes slip into Christian self-improvement, uh, self-help. And formation reminds us that uh, our transformation happens in the context of communion with the Godhead, you know, uh, participation in the life of the Spirit. Uh, so maybe that's the difference. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I think both of you are onto something. <laughs> and uh, I'll go with both of your answers here. So. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I was waiting um, for like the answer, like the with a capital T answer from Rich. No, this was a legitimate <laughs> question. Listen, I'm not trying to just set we, you guys up and then go, let me tell you what I really think. Well, okay, we, let me, let me, let me got, resolve this now. I'm telling you, once Rich. Once and for all, you know. Between you and John Mark, we got like coast to coast gurus of this subject here. I was expecting more, you know. Right? <laughs> well... Uh, I'll ponder that. That'll be for the next season here. But uh, John, Mark and I, you know, we, we had a really wonderful conversation. And one of the things we talked about is, you know, having a working theory of change. And part of the working theory of change that he alluded to was uh, three things. Um, one related to contemplative prayer, deep relationships and and suffering and, and suffering, hmm. meaning not something that you plan on your calendar, like on Thursday at noon. OK, I'm, I'm looking forward to suffering here and growing in Christ-likeness. Although I do think some of that can be, um, we can be more intentional about suffering in the sense of putting myself in uh, uncomfortable positions where um, something of my flesh has to die, something of my ego has to die, where it might uh, yield some suffering. But that was kind of like working theory of change. When you think about formation, discipleship, um, your own personal rule of life for the sake of transformation and spiritual formation, how are you thinking about that? And, you know, we're still early on in the year. Um, and so lots of folks are hopefully by now still thinking about uh, formation for 2024. Mm -hmm. And we haven't given up already on our, you know, resolutions and all that stuff. But we're still trying to think critically about growing as followers of Jesus. How do you both think about, Glenn, we'll start with you. And, uh, you know, you have a, a lot to say about this. I mean, you and Holly wrote a book together in terms of thinking about uh, the rhythms and relationships, the rule. How do you think about your own spiritual formation or rule of life? Well, the irony here is, you know, thinking about something for a long time doesn't automatically mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, mm. it's you're, you're, uh, you never master it, right? Spiritual formation is that, yeah. that kind of thing. You never master it. We're always apprentices of one master. And, and I think, um, in the intentional year, yeah, we do, we do kind of build in this three stage sort of thing. One is reflecting on the past uh, the other is listening to God for the uh, uh, the word for the season that you're in, or just to discern the season you're in. And then the, the third phase is taking an inventory of five spheres of your life and then determining rhythms for those five spheres, prayer, rest, renewal, relationships, and work. And in a way that is past, present, and future. You know, past, we, we, we need to look backwards with the Lord. Uh, and then present, we need to dwell in the present with the Lord and listen to what is the season we're in now? What is the now moment? And then the future of what are the practices we're going to embrace as we step into the, the, the immediate future. 
And I, I think that's helpful. Those are helpful ways to kind of shape my own, you know, spiritual life. I look forward to these mile marker moments in the year, once mm-hmm. or twice a year, where we can kind of reset, call a timeout and do that, make sure I'm not on cruise control or, or that the default settings, you know, for the previous season, maybe they don't apply anymore in this new one, default rhythms. Um, but I, you know, I think even just to zoom out, you mentioned John Mark's theory of change or his working theory of change. I, I think when I think about um, the life of the church and various moments in church history, there's really been three pieces that form this kind of Venn diagram that we use even in our church for a, for, we call it our formation framework. And it's the components are learning, practices, and shared life. And I don't think that's rocket science. I don't think we're inventing that. I, I, in fact, I'm quite certain we're not. I think Cyprian was doing this in North Africa in the third century, fourth century. You know, so, but but the the learning is that you you never get around engaging the mind and and learning uh, the, in the scriptures and uh, the teachings of Jesus. I almost start with concentric circles from the teachings of Jesus outward into the whole council mm-hmm. of scripture. And then there's a practices thing where it is our habits and our rhythms and our, our spiritual practices. And then there's shared life. There's the life with the community and we don't get away from that. You know, we, this isn't a, a solo project and I am at my best when I have the right people around me in the right season. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's great, Glenn. That's really great. Sharon, how about you? Have you developed a, a rule of life for something similar like that? A, a set of practices, mm-hmm. disciplines that shape how you think about your own discipleship? So- the concept of a rule of life is actually still relatively new to me. And so the short answer is no, but it's it's something that I'm actually wanting to implement in the near future. But in the meantime, we've actually, as a church, we have been leaning into equipping our church community with spiritual practices. And we've actually been using John Mark's Practicing the Way curriculum We've been studying it biannually, so twice a year. Every small mm. group does it. Mm. We preach through it as well. You mm. know, the whole church just focuses for four weeks on some spiritual discipline. Mm. And part of our thinking for that was what you repeat is how you are formed. That's, that is what you become. And obviously it's not a formula, mm-hmm. but the importance of really equipping our people with the practices to cultivate their faith is something that Mm -hmm. we have leaned hard into. But then personally for me, as I think through, you know, a rule of life, two components of John Mark's that really resonate with me, the contemplative prayer piece, specifically silence. Mm -hmm. I, I am someone, we've talked about this before, like I'm a classic Enneagram seven. I will, I will fill my empty space with Disney podcasts, you know, if, if given the chance, like that, that's how I want to cope with the things Can that you are share hard. those? I haven't had any Disney podcasts, Jen. I need, <laughs> well, after, yes, afterwards, send me yes, the links to that. Yes, yes. I'm going to Disney um, tomorrow, and guys. So, <laughs> what? Um, so that has actually been really important for me is having silence and space mm. to not run away from what God is doing in me or to, to not face Mm. my pain. Mm. But then the other piece suffering is I love thinking of that as a mechanism of transformation because our culture does not have that framework for suffering. It's something to fight off or to Mm. endure or to numb away. And I think if we bring that category into ministry, it's going to just take us out so quickly. Mm. Like you you mm. have to have a category for suffering as a means of transformation to have any um, longevity in ministry. Mm. And so yeah. those have been for sure really important for me in this season of ministry. That's great. And before we go into our conversation with John Mark, you know, I, I think about Sharon, I really liked your, because in many ways I think about it, formation oriented around or spiritual formation oriented around the practices, the rhythms, whereas discipleship, um, one way that I think about it has an interpersonal dynamic to it where I am discipling others. I'm helping others to follow in the way of Jesus. When you think about your role as a pastor, of course, we're discipling on so many levels. We're, we're preaching. We're, we're leading in different contexts. Um, but creating a culture of discipleship where people are intentionally um, uh, learning what it means to follow Jesus um, 
in your role as lead pastors, what, what, has, what have you done to create spaces or an environment where discipleship can happen interpersonally and not necessarily just geared towards, you know, you and the church, but more yeah. of a larger culture of discipleship? Mm-hmm. For us, it it's not been fancy. We We have people in our home a lot. That's that's been a big part of it is mm-hmm. inviting people mm-hmm. to see how I am with my kids mm-hmm. or to see how I am with Ike, mm-hmm. um, just to kind of have this up close look at how we follow Jesus and to mm-hmm. invite people into our lives that way has that's what it's looked like for us, honestly, in many ways. Mm-hmm. I love that. I, I say yes to all of that. The the kind of unscripted, you know, pull the curtain back, bring people in. I think as a leader, I found it very helpful. And Jay Kim at Westgate Church and his teams, another guy, David Kim on his team, who's written a book called Made to Belong. I really enjoyed that book. John Mark actually endorsed that book. But he talks about that sociological thing of four spaces, public space, social space, personal space, intimate space. And I found it helpful to think about discipleship in those Mm. four spaces as a pastor. So public space would be Sunday services. Social space is like you know, the one one or two gatherings per semester for the women's group or the young adults. <clears throat> and then, you know, personal space is that small group and intimate space is that one-on-one in the home. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we can't script the intimate space stuff, but we can kind of help set things up in the other three spaces and then encourage a culture where people are pushing and meeting with each other into the, that mm-hmm. other realm. Yeah, that's good. That's great. You know, one of the ways that I've tried to do this um, you know, as a pastor, paying attention to how God has wired you, your gifts, your passions, your energies, uh, and using that as a way of serving for the purpose of discipleship can really be helpful. One of the ways I've done that is through preaching. And so uh, over the years, I've taken uh, six to seven congregants, sometimes who are on staff, sometimes who are not on staff, uh, and have trained them in, in preaching. And But for me, the larger picture is not teaching them how to tell a story or give an illustration or exegete a text. It's really what it doesn't mean to have a life with God out of which we speak. And so for me, like whether it's three months, four months where I'm meeting with these folks and talking about not just a sermon, but their lives has been really one aspect of how I've tried to disciple people in a way that uh, corresponds with my own passions, my own desires. Um, And so I think if you're listening to this, getting creative. We, we don't have to keep doing the same thing and copying, pasting everywhere, but God has uniquely wired you and uniquely created you with passions, gifts, your own history, your own experiences. And now how could those things be used for the sake of formation and discipleship? Well, we can talk about this forever as, uh, as we, uh, every week would love to do, but uh, I had a great conversation with John Mark and I want to take you to that conversation right now. John Mark Comer, such a gift to be with you, man. Hey, friend. I wish we were together together, not on the internet together, but I'll take what yes. I can get. Yes, yes, yes. You and I have had wonderful conversations over the years in different contexts, and so I'm just glad It was nice to, to share a meal with you recently at that, like, what was it, like a Thai-Italian fusion place? The weirdest combo, but it worked. It was the it was weirdest. Thing. It, it did work. And the Thai Italian fusion place was run by a guy who's from Queens, Queens, New York, <laughs> Flushing right. Queens. So I was like, <laughs> of course, the Queens connection would be there. So uh, yes, yes, yes. Um, hey, man, your your ministry, your writings, your teachings have uh, blessed me in some really wonderful ways and blessed so mm. many people. And Back so at, yeah. uh, just glad to have this conversation uh, with you and uh, we can dive into a whole lot of stuff, but you know you're in uh, a unique position now because you're pastoring a congregation, a wonderful congregation, Bridgetown Church in Portland. I had the privilege of preaching there uh, earlier in this year, 2023, um, and you step back from that to focus your attention on some broader formational pastoral leadership stuff there. So first of all, just to give some context in terms of just your own story, what, what led you to that decision of pastoring and stepping away? And what new things are you seeing now that you're no longer in the role? So I imagine there's certain things you're seeing now that maybe you couldn't see before. Mm. 
Yeah, gosh, a lot, a lot of thoughts there, though many of them are still in the unformed or in the process of formation. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Rich. I am a son of a pastor. So my dad came to faith in the Jesus movement. I grew up at one of the first mega churches in America and then ended up on staff at another church at 19 years old. So like I remember being seven and going early Sunday morning and sitting in the back of the elders prayer meeting and drawing pictures while my dad and the elders were praying, you know. So I have been in or behind the scenes on church leadership for my whole life. I'm 43 until I stepped down a year and a half, two years ago. And man, the the disorientation and the dislocation of now being on the other side, on the receiving side of church is it has been a steep learning curve. It's been hard. It's been beautiful. It's been difficult. It's been good. It's been all of those <laughs> things. And, you know, it's a long story what led me to it. I mean, at the end of the day, it's discernment, which I think I would define as just knowing and doing the will of God. And yeah. Uh, yeah. my sense of discernment was that was the next step for me. And for me, it was not a step out of ministry. It was a step into greater specialization in my mm -hmm. gifting for ministry, which comes with age. You know, when I remember we, we church planted. So like anybody are on our staff, I'm like, I've had your job. Janitor, I've had your job. <laughs> Kindergarten person, I've had your job. I remember doing like schedules for first through third grade. And I mean, all the things. Worship pastor, I've had your job. Preacher, I've had your job. Youth pastor, <laughs> I've had your job. I literally, I, we just moved to California and we had all these issues with getting my license transferred because I used to have my bus driver's license so we could drive kids to camp <laughs> every summer to save money, you know? So deep in me. And, you know, the hope is not for everybody. Some people are called by God to be generalists. In fact, I think most pastoral work is a generalist kind of work, not a specialist kind of work. But some people, you know, you begin to discover that, you know, the, the gift matrix that God put in you requires greater and greater specialization, time, expertise. And for me, I just had this growing desire in my heart to give myself more fully to teaching, to writing, and to the work of discipleship or spiritual formation, which I kind of use those words interchangeably. And um, obviously, as you know, leading a church is a whole lot of other things that are not preaching, teaching, writing books, and and discipleship. Or it's a different, or if it's a, it's a different approach to discipleship, more of an organizational approach, which is legitimate. And um, but I just most people don't know, but secretly I wanted to I I didn't really want to lead a church for a very, very long time. But discernment, I just had the sense of this is what God had called me to do. And that season came to an end. So I stepped down um, mostly to give myself more to the work of discipleship. I could preach from my role as a pastor. I was able to write books. Um, but I have a little bit more time to do that now, but not really. Mostly I wanted to give myself more work, more deeply to the work of formation and how to integrated into the local church, which I think kind of goes to your, the second thing you mentioned, what am I kind of seeing and receiving now on the other end? You know, there's a real gift, and I want to be careful how I say this. Any pastor knows, and this is especially true if you are the lead pastor or in any executive leadership role, that our ego is deeply tied up in the health or dysfunction, success or failure of our local church. And to say otherwise is you are either a saint or you are highly <laughs> delusional or in denial and more likely one of the Ds. And, uh, you know, a mentor of mine that I highly respect, who's a pastor, said to me, he's like, oh, John Mark, I, I don't even know in my heart at what point I am no longer serving the church and the church is serving me, you know? And, um, and we, I think the intention is that over many decades of faithful service to the church of Jesus and discipleship to him, that, that impure mixture would get, you know, pure and pure and pure, but I don't think there's ever a spot where your ego is not tied up in the church at some level, even if you're not paid by it. And so it's a real gift to be, outside of any official position of leadership in a local church 
because it's kind of exposed the areas where like, hey, maybe that wasn't actually a conviction of the spirit of God in me. Maybe that was just like part of my ego or my ambition, or this is how you succeed, or this is what good pastors do, or this is what good churches do. And so some convictions, it's really deepened and given me, I think, a little bit more emotional distance from certain structures and, and beliefs to just really sit more deeply. And one of the convictions I've had for many years in my pastoral work has just, I am probably wildly underwhelmed by Sundays. And that's been for a long time. And I, and wildly underwhelmed doesn't mean I don't believe they're good or believe in the power of preaching. But the farther I get down the spiritual journey, the more I learn about spiritual formation, the more time I spend with people, the more I find that it's it's Christian community around tables more than around stages and in very small, quiet contexts, more than large, loud ones, where most of the deepest transformation happens. And it's not either or, it's a both and, and that doesn't discount the importance of Sunday. But now just attending church on Sunday, and it has so deepened that conviction. Now that my ego is not tied up in how large the church, <laughs> you know, the whole thing, most pastors wish their church was larger, most people wish their church was smaller. And yeah, I'm on yeah. the receiving end of that. I'm like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, along those lines, you know, um, when I when I think about, you know, ex uh, in this little mental exercise around uh, what would I say to my younger self? You know, what, what would the John Mark of today say to the John Mark of yesterday? I imagine that uh, we have many listeners who are in their 20s, pastors, leaders in their young 30s, mid 30s. Um, what are you saying to yourself? Um, what are you saying to them to encourage them in light of just what you said, not just as pastors in terms of um, uh, Sunday can only take you so far in your formation as a, you know, as a preacher, but as a follower of Jesus, who, who of people who are pastors, what would you say to those folks today in light of what you've experienced and what you know now? Oh man, I think it's a great question. I think we should all ask ourselves that question throughout our life. And this season, again, 20 years as a pastor, took a long sabbatical, and I spent a lot of time just asking myself, like, what are my regrets? And it wasn't like in a masochistic way. It was more, God willing, I have another 20 or, or more years of ministry ahead. I don't want to just keep repeating the same dysfunctional pattern. So what can I learn from the first half, you know? And so I think it's a really important question. Um, one of the things that I would just scream through a megaphone at my younger self would be just slow down, be patient. You know, all the Fuller Seminary <laughs> making of a leader stuff that, you know, essentially says everything before your 50s or 60s is preparation. And, you know, none of us feel that way when we're 30 or 35 or 40. We're just feel like we're climbing our first mountain. We're going for it. And it's all preparation. And the journey is so much longer. Like I remember my first half marathon I ever ran. You hear everybody say to you, like, you're going to be there and you're going to be in a crowd and you're going to be wearing like a jersey with a number on it. And you're going to have like people screaming and you're going to be tempted to just run really, really fast. And then you'll make it to like mile four or five and you'll be like exhausted and you still have a long ways to go. And so like you have to discipline yourself not to go too fast earlier in the race. And then for the second half of the race, you have to discipline yourself to not quit, not give up. And yeah. I think, yeah, you know, there's such a such an emotional, I think, uh, parallel between that kind of a race and the lifelong race of pastoring, which Paul likens pastoring to running a race. And I think I wish I could have told my younger self, like I remember my first race, I ran way too fast at the beginning. And then I barely made it across the finish line with the terrible time. But then those first three miles, I crushed it. And uh, I just wish I could go back and say to myself, slow down. Unfortunately, I was not in a church culture where anybody was saying that. It was yeah. all how yeah. fast can you go? How big can you get your church? How young can you church plant? It was very ambitious, very driven. 
And that wasn't all bad, but man, the shadow side on that was profound. So I, I would say go slow. And secondly, I would say do not be enamored with Sunday. Do not be enamored with the big. Do not make mm-hmm. your metrics for success, the typical American mm-hmm. megachurch metrics, for so many different reasons. One, they do not necessarily lead to transformation in a lot of people. A lot of people in a room who really like what's happening does not equate to a lot of people being deeply formed into the image of Jesus. And, and they get old. In my experience, like there is that first half of life, first mountain, heady feeling of when you have started church and it grows or you plaster a church and it grows. But that feeling goes away and then you end up, you're leading an organization and it's exhausting. And you know, there, turns out there are 52 Sundays every year. And they're not, they're not making any less of them. They keep coming. <laughs> and there's, after a while, you're like, wait, we're doing this again? <laughs> and uh, it's meaningful work, but it is hard work. But in my experience, seeing deep relationships formed and people experience healing and freedom from compulsion and addiction, new layers of self-revelation before God, new layers of surrender to God. And that's the kind of stuff that just never gets yeah. old. So I think yeah. if I was younger and I had a slower pace and different metrics for success, and I was much more focused on the stuff that matters that um, I think I would have saved myself a heck of a lot of pain. Yeah. Talk a little more about the slowing, you know, slowing down the pace there. Is it for you, was that a matter of more time in solitude, more time in silence, or was it, is there a, in addition to that, a larger, you know, I, I, re, I read in Henry Nowen's journals, um, something along the lines of being mindful of destination disease that you're going to, um, uh, you know, we all have these timetables that we need to reach by a certain time. And, um, is it along those lines for you slowing down to the young pastor? What's, is that Sabbath silent solitude or is there anything else? Yeah. I mean, I guess one of the hard lessons for me was, There's the whole conversation, whether you want to frame it through the lens of slowing or practicing the presence of God or a more prayerful contemplative life. There's the whole like pragmatic approach to it where you adopt practices for slowing like Sabbath and silence and contemplative prayer and confession and deep relationships and community. Basically, you architect a rule of life that is designed to mitigate against the hurry and over-exhaustion and digital distraction of the world we call home. And so it's a, it's a pragmatic conversation. It's like, hey, I want to be a pastor for the long haul. And not just a pastor, I want to abide. I want to be formed into the image of Jesus, whether I'm a pastor or not. And so I need these practices and to adopt this rule of life and to form a kind of you know, life architecture of counterformation to the pace and the value system of the world. I did all of that, and I my life was remarkably better. But turned out, I still had all sorts of psychosis and issues and stuff that you know practicing Sabbath did not solve. And doing an hour of contemplative prayer in the morning was a, a it transformed my life. But there was still stuff. And then I realized there's this whole less pragmatic, more psycho-spiritual layer underneath it that is the real work of spiritual formation. I mean, you know, the practices, the disciplines, they just make room for the real stuff to happen. You know, they're the, yeah. they're the boundary. They're, they're the rules to the game. The game itself is the life of prayer with God and with other people. And um, that psycho-spiritual work is much slower. You're less in control. I can't just put it on a rule of life and schedule it into my daily calendar. For example, one of the primary, a couple of the primary sources of ongoing exhaustion in my pastoral life were fear of what other people thought of me. You're constantly criticized as a pastor. And that if, if, unless if you're like an Enneagram eight, who's just like thrives off the energy of it, which I am not, you know, that's really exhausting. Um, I'm a perfectionist and pastoral work in particular is very messy and imperfect. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. no matter what happens, you're not in control. I'm a control oriented personality, 
holy cow, pastoring and parenting. It's like you do all the right things and still <laughs> they do all the, they do all the other things or they do the things you want them to and it still doesn't work. You're so not That's in control. Right. So these deeper issues, you know, what I think um, psychologists would call attachments or Calvinists would call idols. These, these exhaust us. They drive us to hurry. Why, why do we get, why do I get sucked into hurry? I literally wrote a book about slowing down <laughs> and you would think that would make mm -hmm. me just live in this perpetual Jesus Zen of never in a hurry, always. You're present. not there, John Markey. You're not there yet, man. You know, I'm there about five days a week, but every, <laughs> just a day or two a week where I, I slip, you know? Yeah. You think it would fix my problem. You know, it's the David Brooks line. I'm always trying to write myself into a better life. But it yeah. turns out, like, I know there's these deep forces in me that sabotage my heart's most earnest intentions to live a slower life that are rooted in perfectionism and wanting people to think well of me and fear over not having enough money. Where does that even come from? It's totally irrational. But yet I will sometimes work harder and do things I don't need to do because I'm scared I won't have enough money for Christmas presents. It's ridiculous. It's not even rational but it's in my body. It's in my brokenness. And that's the deeper work of formation that I think the life of prayer and the life of community and the life of suffering, which are the three, I think these, those are the three primary pathways toward growth, contemplative prayer, deep community and suffering, two of which we do on purpose. The other one we never do. It's done to us. And you know, our role is to, to welcome God's invitations in it. But Mm, I'm rambling, yeah, but I guess that's no. It's so good. That's how I think about and, it. And we could spend an hour on, on each of those uh, three. Um, <clears throat> so really, really well said. Um, well, now you're leading um, practicing the way, a, a nonprofit yeah. aimed at creating resources and a pathway to equip people to becoming like Jesus in community. Now we've already addressed some of it here, but you know, what, what were some of the challenges? You talked about the Sunday centric kind of way, being enamored with Sundays, but what were, some, what were some of the challenges that you saw um, around discipleship, around apprenticeship? You know, uh, Barna's done some research, and um, one out of 10 pastors would rate their church's effectiveness at, you know, in discipleship as very effective. So, mm, you know, one, wow. 10 out of 100 pastors 10%, are saying, yeah, yeah, yeah we're, we're doing all right. We're doing all right. 90% uh, or not. And so you are leading practicing the way, you know, what, what did you see? Like, what's, what's this all about where you're trying to change the story as it relates to formation and discipleship within the church? What, what prompted you to devoting your focus mm. on this work? Well, I mean, first off, there's the personal crisis of discipleship that I went through where my, I remember reading this line from Ruth Haley Barton, where she said, uh, she was telling her story and she said, I had come to the end of what the typical evangelical discipleship model had to offer. And I, when, she, when I read that, I said, I, I remember that feeling. I remember that moment. I remember that feeling where I'm doing the things I grew up. You know, you go to church, you read your Bible and pray in the morning, you tithe. Maybe you're in a small group and, uh, and it was working until it was no longer working on the deeper stuff. It was helpful in the earlier stages of my spiritual journey and then less and less helpful over time. And I remember that moment. I remember reading Critical Journey where they, you know, break the spiritual journey down into six stages, argue that most American Christians never mature beyond stage three. And with no angst, they argue one of the reasons is most churches never offer any model of discipleship beyond stage three. And uh, lots of conversation we could go into there. So I think, you know, again, son of a pastor, which I'm very grateful for, but I grew up deep in the heart of evangelicalism and evangelicalism was, came out of the enlightenment era in the West. And it was built off of an enlightenment view of the human person, not a Hebrew biblical view of the human person. And it therefore was built on the assumption that as a person's knowledge of the Bible increases, their spiritual maturity will increase along with it. Mm. And I have spent my whole life in Bible teaching, gospel preaching, <laughs> Jesus loving churches. And I can assure you that is wildly inaccurate, you know, <laughs> at best. There's, there's enough parallel between, there's enough, you know, correlation between 
you know, growth in biblical knowledge and growth in spiritual maturity early in the spiritual journey to keep that myth alive. But that correlation, in my experience, and there's lots of data to say this as well, goes down over time. Meaning, if you're 22 and you just became a Christian and you need discipleship from your church, you are probably wildly off base in how you view gender, sexuality, money, forgiveness. And so learning what scripture teaches about all of those things and more is going to, you know, catapult you forward in your spiritual journey. But I have a basic gist in my mind of, you know, what scripture teaches about all of that. The problems I'm solving for now are way deeper. They are not going to be fixed by a book or a podcast or a sermon series. They're, you know, contempt that leaks out of my uh, messed up heart and sarcastic put downs toward my wife when I'm tired. They're, you know, behaving in ways that are shame-based or controlling toward my teenage kids because I'm scared that are really rooted in my fear that they're not going to do well in some. Their deep fear of, of other people's opinion of me or criticism of me. An exegetical sermon series through Romans is a beautiful thing. It is likely not going to fix these problems in my life. Um, they're going to be fixed through, again, contemplative prayer, deep relationships, and suffering are like the stripping of attachments. That's likely how they are going to be healed. Fixed is not even the right word. So at this point in my journey, I need a more holistic, body-based, emotionally informed, relational mode of discipleship to heal and transform and change these deep layers of sin in my body. And so all that to say, um, a lot of what Practicing the Way came out of was learning the hard way that really good Bible teaching and biblical education is a good and important thing, good and necessary, but insufficient if you want to see people formed into a high degree of spiritual maturity. So when we discovered, you know, the writings of Dallas Willard and through him, the whole world of kind of what we would call spiritual formation over the last half century... And now a lot of kind of, you know, uh, parallel fields of study, some of them in the secular sciences around trauma and attachment filters and neuroscience and, you know, um, some really helpful work. When I discovered this entire kind of new universe, it utterly tra it changed the way I follow Jesus. It utterly was transformative, did not fix me, but it seriously moved me forward in my spiritual journey. And we developed um, a working theory of change. So again, an, a mentor said to us, uh, you know, do you have a working theory of change, which is language from psychology? And I was like, uh, what do you mean by that? And he said, like, do you have a working theory of how somebody comes to faith and over a long period of time, they become the kind of people who are naturally living the Sermon on the Mount? And um, I realized that all pastors have a theory of change. But for most of us, it's unconscious, not conscious. We've not really thought about it or articulated it. It's not in a diagram on a church website, which means often it is very haphazard, not intentional. And often it's very ineffective rather than transformative. So we spent years coming up with what we call our working theory of change. We're careful to call it a theory, but it's a working theory. Like it, it, We think it works. And we quickly realized, wow, our model of church does a couple of things really well, but it's missing whole pieces, which for us, the two glaring kind of missing holes were this, the place of practice or the spiritual disciplines or rule of life, and in particular disciplines for slowing, and the place of community and deep relationships. And many previous generations of pastors could assume these two things, they could assume disciplines because many people had a basic life architecture of discipleship and they could assume community because churches were much smaller. Life was much slower. People were more relationally connected and time bound to their place. But now we live in a world where most of that basic life architecture of spiritual disciplines and deep community has been swallowed up by a thousand different things from the size of the church to urban transients to digital busyness. So we have to go back, often with educated adults, and almost train them from the beginning, right? This is how you follow Jesus and do it in community. So that's what Practicing the Way came out of and my desire to, to offer it to the wider church. 
And along those lines, you're, you've crystallized many of these ideas. I can't wait to read your new book, Practicing the Way, that you just came out with. Um, how do you imagine this resource um, you know, to serve individuals, to serve churches? You're, you're talking about, I think everyone wants the kind of working theory of change that's moving people to uh, follow Jesus in the way of the Sermon on the Mount and uh, looking more like Christ, conformed to his image. Um, how is this resource, and your books have been such a gift to so many, um, how do you envision this serving individuals um, and churches? Yeah, well, I mean, the book is its just a book. It just lays out a vision of apprenticeship to Jesus and spiritual formation and the role of a rule of life. And at that point, I'm just trying to help, you know, people's mental maps kind of begin to map onto that of Jesus. But practicing the way the the ministry, the resources we're creating, which is basically one course that's kind of an eight-week primer on spiritual formation, on-ramp into a life of practices that's due out in March, and then nine practices, which are basically these four-week experiences for communities to integrate the classical spiritual disciplines into their life, Sabbath, silence, fasting, you know, solitude, prayer, scripture, community, generosity, service, witness, to kind of integrate that all into a rule of life for the modern era. And they're all designed to be done in community. Um, so they're not just, they're not content. They're not, I mean, there is, some, there is a teaching portion in each one. But it's all practice-based and community discipleship. So you'd come together with a community, whether it's your whole church or 100 people in a formation class or six people in a small group or you and your couple roommates. You come together and there is like a teaching you listen to, but then each week has a practice or a spiritual exercise that you do. And then you do it all in community and there's reflection questions and you process together in community. So it's based on our working theory of change which goes from teaching to also practice to reflection to processing and community, which thus that four part step is kind of crucial for our view of how discipleship is done. So yeah, so we're basically creating, they're all free and they're designed for churches. So we're not doing anything direct to user. We are intentionally, I mean, other than like books and podcasts or for the internet, sure. anybody that wants to read it, but we are, we exist to serve the church. So the reason I stepped down is because I had, so, so I felt this way as a pastor. I had all these things I wanted to do. I wanted to create. So, you know, Willard famously said what the church needs, like we're living in a crisis of discipleship, called it the great omission. And he said what the church needs is a curriculum for Christlikeness. So we have a curriculum to learn New Testament overview. We have some curriculums for marriage and parenting. We need a curriculum for the Sermon on the Mount. How do you learn how to become the kind of person that doesn't worry about tomorrow or doesn't objectify women with your lust, or is faithful to your marriage, or isn't marred by contempt and anger in your heart toward other people you disagree with. How we need that curriculum, you know? Yeah. And so we, but he never wrote it. So we, that's what we are trying to do. We originally practicing the way it was originally called curriculum for Christ likeness. We changed the name, but we are trying to write a curriculum for Christ likeness for the digital age. So our first offering, we have a lot more we want to do, tons more down the road, but as one course, nine practices for free for the church designed to be run by local churches in local communities. So we're just trying to serve the church. I, for years, felt like I want to do this, but I don't have the time. And I know that so many pastors I talked to are like, we know discipleship is a major issue. You know, very few pastors I talked to are like, yeah, we're just crushing it. It's that one in 10 stat you just used. So we want to kind of serve as a you know, discipleship pastor at large for whatever churches find it helpful. That's beautiful. You know, speaking of discipleship crisis and another statistic, you know, uh, Barna has come out in some research saying that two in five pastors, 38%, say that they find it difficult to find time in their ministry schedule to invest in their own spiritual development. Mm. And one in five pastors, 22%, uh, rate their spiritual well-being as as excellent, and so uh, when you think about your own uh, personal rhythms that make up your rule of life, you've written extensively about rule of life. Um, what are some of the rhythms for you that keep you? You know, you're not leading a church, but you have your own full life as well, uh, yeah. and it's very easy to be writing and and not to be tending to your own soul. What 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 does your rule of life look like? the rhythms that have helped you to remain anchored to Jesus and, you know, in the very full world that you live in. Hmm. 
I mean, those are really important questions, aren't they? I mean, I, I can only speak out of my experience. The hard part with answering a question like that is there's so many other people listening who have different personalities or at different stages in there and need to hear different things, you know? So myself as a workaholic, compulsive, perfectionist, you know, driven person, I need to um, freight my rule of life in the direction of disciplines of slowing, of not doing. And so there's very little that I would say that you would not kind of imagine. Sabbath for me, anchor discipline. And we go hard. I mean, we're like, put all of our devices, power off, including our teenagers in a box. We do the candles and the liturgy. We have people around our table every Friday night. I mean, we go, we go deep in Sabbath. And morning prayer, pre-phone, uh, absolutely crucial to begin each morning in a contemplative way. And, um, you know, so it, it would be stuff like that that you would imagine. And then confession is a huge part. Tomorrow night, I'll be with a close friend and we'll do confession. And that is, you know, which is not just sin. It's also confession of, you know, what's troubling us and wounding us and what are the burdens that we're carrying, um, naming our inner life to one another. So, I mean, th these are just anchor, core, you know, pillars for me in my pastoral life, discipleship life. But, um, and then there, you know, there's others that I think are important that aren't, don't get as much airplay. Like I think the discipline of secrecy is really important for pastors. I think as a general rule, the more public your role is, the more you have to hide and the more you have to serve in obscurity. And um, otherwise something about that public, and I don't mean public like Justin Bieber public figure. I mean, and certainly yeah. that too, but I mean public like, you know, pastor of a church of 100 people is a public figure. I think it's incredibly important that we learn to hide. Elton Trueblood said that. And it's incredibly important that we have a spiritual life that nobody sees and nobody knows about. And there are lots of different things that could be. And sometimes you don't even need to go out. You know, the easy things are basically hidden prayer and serving the poor without posting it on Instagram or inviting your church. Like one pastor I deeply respect who has built his whole church around an incredibly robust view of justice makes it a point to once a month serve in a local ministry and nonprofit that the church is not connected to. So he's not there trying to get 300 people to serve for this ministry and say, look, we have this many volunteers, support, whatever. He's there. It's just the random person who's just serving the poor. And I think that's really beautiful. Now, often season of life, if you have a spouse that's unwell or you have little kids or you're bivocational, often life serves you up a daily opportunity to like, you know, if you're a stay at home mom and you're listening to this and you're like 27 and you have three kids and you're exhausted, you don't need the discipline of secrecy. Your life is the discipline. <laughs> you need the discipline of celebration. Right. But if you're a pastor and you're on stages all the time, and every time you preach a sermon, you're talking about your inner life with God, you heck, I need the discipline of secrecy. And um, it can look like lots of different things from serving the poor to private prayer, to stories that you never tell, to stories you never even tell your spouse, you keep them secret, to sabbatical. These are all aspects of the discipline of secrecy that I think are, are, are really really important. Um, but then the other piece to it that, that must be said is there is a pain to pastoring that, you know, I love the, the language of resilience. You know, I was thinking about this right before our call. Uh, you know, some of the best learnings right now in the formation field are around the healing of trauma and attachment filters through the lens of discipleship, contemplative prayer, community, beautiful stuff being learned right now. There's been this incredible body of scientific work done around the healing of trauma for the last several decades. And all of the early kind of learnings, and this is just secular stuff, was all about building resilience. That was like the, the, the if you're a psychologist and you're working with someone with trauma, it was all about how do I help this person build resilience? So all this data around post-traumatic growth, one of like, there's tons of data for it that often people emerge from trauma stronger than ever before, better, happier than ever before. It's amazing, but it depends on their response and the relationships connected to it. But the trauma conversation has been sucked up in the socio-political conversations, particularly around power analysis. And what that has made 
is it's made psychologists skittish to talk about building resilience or growth from trauma. And the, the tragedy there is then people often get stuck in it and it becomes a, a defining pain over the course of a life rather than a, a wound that becomes a sacred wound in Christian language. And that's not to downplay the, the gravity of trauma or to try to have some trite like, hey, you know, don't get better, get better nonsense over it. It's to say there is a pain, there is even a small t trauma that comes with pastoring a church. And God will use that deeply if you open it to him. And there's a, there's a toxic version of that that will destroy you and deform you. And there's a healthy version of it that you see in Jesus and Paul. I remember reading, um, Scott McKnight has this little book. It's not one of his well-known books. I think it's called Pastor Paul or something like that. It was like a little aside book he did on a, like a Paul, Pauline theology of pastoring. And I don't, honestly, I don't even remember much of the book, but it had this one chapter that so deeply imprinted my view of the pastorate where he talks about Paul's theology of spiritual leadership as vicarious suffering. That to pastor is to suffer like Christ did in others' place. It's to take on their pain, projection, transference, their wounding into your own body, to make your body the graveyard for hate, to be the place where it stops, and to give blessing back instead of cursing. And... Um, so there's an unhealthy, toxic version of that that will destroy you, and there is a healthy Jesus cruciform version of that that will both form you and release healing into the world through you. Mm. A relational home, you know, it was Robert Stolaro, a psychiatrist yes. in New York, who said, um, you know, developmental trauma happens because emotional pain cannot find the relational home, and I think mm -hmm. you are really naming something so important. Listen, in our conversations, uh, I could spend hours with you. Um, I want to ask before you pray for us, just to circle back to the three things you mentioned, contemplative prayer, deep yep. relationships and suffering. Um, on a practical note for the contemplative prayer piece, there's some folks here maybe have heard of contemplative prayer, but they don't know what to do with it. The deep relationships and then the suffering piece. I just wonder you know, that sort of happens to us. Uh, we, we don't plan, you know what, on Wednesday morning, I'm hoping to uh, engage. Yes. In some, some <laughs> I'm going to put suffering, suffering into my rule of life <laughs> every Thursday at 3 p.m. Every every Thursday at 3 p.m. So um, but what's, what's one simple invitation for each of those areas? Uh, and the third one might look different um, that someone could give attention to, especially in light of the burnout, the exhaustion, the trauma, all the rest there. Hmm. Oh, I think it's so simple. I think, you know, prayer needs to happen on a daily basis, in my strong opinion. That's all it is. There's no Bible verse for that. But um, I, I think that is a daily, whether it's first thing in the morning or before bed or whatever works for your life and stage and situation. And if you're new, and when I say a prayer, I don't mean sitting down with a list of things to pray for and praying those to God. That should happen on a daily basis too. That's great. I do that later in the day on walks and lunch breaks and with our staff. I mean, sitting before the face of God and letting him love you into a person of love. And some people are more focused on the technique of contemplative prayer. Um, I'm less, you know, enthused by that. That's important. But technique is for us. It's not for God. It's, you know, there are different forms. Uh, mine is fairly simple. I don't do anything too ninja. I mostly just pray the Psalms and sit in silence quietly before God. And yeah. my mind wanders constantly. And I just try to bring it back to his love. And those moments where I'm really in connection with God tend to be quite fleeting. And they are the most healing and joyful moments of pretty much every single day of my life. And if you have yet to taste the joy of that love, oh, Gosh, I just, I can't say enough. Um, so find, find a writer to help you. You know, I find Jacques Philippe's work incredibly helpful. He's a little book, I think it's called Time for God. Great little introduction to contemplative prayer. Um, there's other writers, but his, some of them have a little kind of progressive -y leanings that I don't find as helpful. Um, and then on the relational side, whether it's weekly or just regularly, you need to practice confession. 
And I think this is a, a huge weak point in the Protestant stream of the church. We threw the baby out with the bathwater. Confession was abused in the high middle ages. So we turned confession into an individualized, privatized mental thing. So most people confession is like when I'm coming forward on Sunday to receive the grape juice and the, the wafer, I say sorry to God in my mind. And confession biblically is a lot more like what happens in an AA meeting, you know, where you sit down and you're like, Hey, my name's rich. And you tell your crap, you know, to a room full of people and they love you. And they're like, bro, I'm calling you. We're getting together every night this week. You're not going to do that again. And we're with you in love, but you, we believe, you know, that's confession. And that's Mm -hmm. why an AA meeting often has a power that, a communion service doesn't. And it's not because communion's yeah. not powerful. It's because how we practice it is so far removed from, I think, the apostolic era. So I think, you know, the practice of confession, whether it's with a therapist or a spiritual director or a spiritual friend, um, I, I just think it's absolutely crucial. And we're not just talking about sin. We're talking about struggles no. as well, aren't we? <clears throat> no. I mean, I, I think about sin, you know, biblically, I like to think about sin in three dimensions, sin done by us, sin done to us and sin done around us. And so confession, you know, if it's naming your sin in the presence of loving community, it should be naming all three dimensions of sin. So, Hey, sin done to us, by us. I did this thing. Sin done, you know, to us, this person really hurt me. This really wounded me. I'm struggling with this sin done around us, man. Um, you know, for example, a lot of confession should be confessing temptation. Hey, I'm I'm really feeling a pull toward this coworker to have an affair or to, you know, lie or to divorce, whatever it is, or it can be small to be controlling with my teenage son. Um, I guess that's actually not very small. <laughs> Sorry, bad example <laughs> out of my own life. Whoops, my sin just came through. Um, but you know, it's it's naming this in the presence of loving community. So yes, a hundred percent to what you just said. Mm. And then lastly, besides putting it on the calendar, the suffering piece there, I mean, is it just a matter of what is that? I mean, what's the posture that someone's taking towards that third dimension that you mentioned here in terms of suffering? I mean, this is this is where, you know, spiritual direction can be really helpful if you have access to a director um, or just a good spiritual friend. It's all about trying to discern or discerning the invitations of God in and through that suffering. So I'm pretty far from on the, the spectrum of Christian disagreement from determinism or Calvinism to, you know, more free will kind of, I'm pretty far toward the free will side, but uh, whether the suffering comes from God or the Satan or our own stupid decisions or just a global pandemic, um, I think God is in all of our suffering and there are always invitations to him, you know? So I went through a a very difficult experience that I'm not at liberty to talk about um, over the last year or two. And so my question has been, okay, God, and I don't think it was God. I personally feel even prophetically feel that God, you know, I think it was satanic for the most part and some other complex human issues as well. But I really felt the spirit say, I'm, I'm humbling you. And I want to work humility in you through this. And I want to free you from anxiety and work a peacefulness of heart in you. And I imagine a a world where I come out of this horribly painful experience that I'm not, again, not at liberty to talk about. And I am more free of my ego, more humble and more peaceful and relaxed than I've ever been. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think God caused this. Um, but I think God's invitations were in it. So then it becomes, I mean, that's a Jacques Philippe's whole thing. It's like the primary question of discipleship is how do I make deeper and deeper layers of myself available to God to transform? Mm-hmm. So you're just constantly asking God, how do I open yes. up deeper layers? How do I surrender? How do I listen for direction? Speak to me. It's why listening prayer, I think listening to God and hearing his voice is at the center of discipleship, the center of prayer. It's why I don't go for the more mindfulness, modern versions of contemplative prayer. Cause I'm like, no, you got to listen. I need to hear God's voice, not just breathe and be free of my attachments. Yes. And hear a word of God to me to direct my life into deepening layers of surrender and obedience. So I mean, it's just, how do I hear his voice? How do I listen? How do I respond? How do I open deeper and deeper layers of myself that are closed to grace and make myself more available to grace. Ah, beautiful. 
you know, I think about James Finley, James Finley, who wrote something on Thomas Merton said, you know, at the essence of prayer, prayer is waiting for a word that we cannot give to ourselves. Oh, and, um, yes. Mm. Amen. You're saying it all there. Oh, well, man, I could talk to you for hours, man, but uh, this podcast is not hours long. Uh, People have a lot. They have a church up, to pastor. They have staff <laughs> meeting coming. They got a sermon prep won't do itself. <laughs> uh, all that. Well, as we wrap up, can you pray? I imagine some folks are listening right now, maybe driving, yeah. maybe walking, going for a run, and they just need a word from God. And mm. so maybe you could offer that word in the form of prayer mm. um, yeah. for our sisters and brothers who are listening. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, at the risk of taking too much liberty, let me offer it as a benediction, uh, just a, a pronouncement of blessing prayer. May you know how truly good and meaningful your work is. May your pain and suffering find their meaning in the cruciform path of God. May you participate in the sufferings of Christ and through your suffering as a mirror to his suffering, may God lead you deeper into union with Christ himself and transformation into Christ-like character. But may you find your heart deeply buoyant and joyful and resilient in the face of all pain and suffering and may you find your heart increasingly year over year, a little bit at a time, in moments of growth spurts and leaps and bounds and moments of growing like an oak tree, slowly but surely. May you find your heart increasingly peaceful and relaxed and at ease and at rest before the God of all creation. Amen. 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 John Mark, always a gift to be with you, my friend. Honored to be with you. Bless you. Keep up the work. Keep the faith. Well, we've come to the end of season four. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Stay tuned. We'll be back later this year with season five. And of course, remember to tune in online for the State of the Pastors Summit later this March. To learn more and to register, go to barna.com slash summit. Okay, Sharon, Rich, what do we want people to do? Like, subscribe, follow? I mean, leave a review about, you know, Disney or... All the above, Glenn. <laughs> and, then, and then name your favorite sports team as you're doing oh, so. That'll really please go. Sharon. There you go. What do you, what do you say, Sharon? What do we want have, people to do? We... I have, like, literally nothing to follow that up with. <laughs> well, I hope you're having as much fun as we are in hosting this show. We're so grateful that you do listen. Please do share, like, follow, subscribe, comment, review, all of the above. And uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs>